then we're in business. That is awesome. That is a beautiful shirt. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. You're welcome. Where my, are you? I'm in Toronto. I'm in my bedroom, <laughs> sitting on my bed. <laughs> Hold nice. on. Here's here's Greg. Hold on a second. Let me get him in here. Greg hates it when I wear shirts like that. So let's let's tease Greg for a bit here. Okay. Hold on. Greg, are you there? Hey, Greg. Hello there. Hi, Greg. Hey, nice. How are you, sir? Good. Thanks. Nice. Greg, what do you think of Steven's shirt? Yeah, it's a very cool shirt. Oh, sure. <laughs> sure. He was telling me that you don't like these shirts. <laughs> so you were No, I don't like it when right? he wears them. I oh, like okay. it when I wear them. <laughs> it's when he wears them. <laughs> you were being set up there, my friend. Yeah. <laughs> what the heck, man? Hi, the following podcast is brought to you by Radical Road Brewery the best craft beer in the heart of Leslieville. Find them at 1177 Queen Street East. That's Radical Road Brewery. Hi, my name is Stephen Fearing. I am a Canadian musician, songwriter, and uh, <laughs> bread baker now. And uh, welcome to the music. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for joining <laughs> us. Welcome. I've been, I, you're the one because I've been going to the local grocery store once a week looking for yeast. <laughs> you're saying that like it's a question. Yeast, is that what <laughs> yeah. I'm looking I think it's yeast. If you're asking that, I think that's your first issue. <laughs> I'm not a baker, but there's no more yeast. No, there is not. There's. Hence, everybody, to... everybody's making sourdough. That's why. Is that, so, oh. Yeah. So I, I think that, well, apparently if you go on uh, Amazon or any of those sites, you'll notice a distinct lack of bread making paraphernalia because it's all, it's, all it's either gone. in transit or it's all sold. There's been this yeah. run on things like that and flour and yeast and yeah. That's right. I'm wondering if I could trade toilet paper now. <laughs> Do some sort of a barter deal. Yeah. I think I've seen a cartoon about that. That might, that might work. Um, Steven, where, where are we calling you at? Where are you? I'm in Victoria uh, on oh, the man. island where uh, my wife and daughter and I moved in 2015. And lucky us, we managed to, it was like an action movie where the big metal doors closing and we slide in underneath. That was just getting into the real estate market before it went vertical. Oh, yeah. So, wow. Yeah, we were very lucky. Excellent. And, and now uh, I'm counting my lucky stars. Like I can't believe that I get to sit this out here because it's a pretty place to be. Yeah. yeah. What are, you know, we, we always ask, and I'm, and I'm sure you've told a million people the same answer, but um, what are what are you doing to sort of, um, I guess, pass the time? What have you been up to these days? Well, baking sourdough bread, baking but that's, I mean, it's, it's true, but it's kind of a joke because I think everybody and their dog is doing that too. Yeah. Um, just, you know, it's like my wife and I moved here in 2015 and the only way we could afford to buy in this market was to buy a seriously beat up hasn't had much love for a long long time a rooming house which we're slowly oh, wow. bringing back to being a single family dwelling so there's an endless amount of jobs but i figured that if at the end of this if there is an end yeah to 
this whole thing. I, I, I think we're all starting to realize that it's not going to be like somebody flicks a switch back on and, hey, we're back. It's going to be mm. some version of what we recall, but I don't know. Anyway, uh, whenever that is, yeah. um, I don't want to be ever have to say again, oh, I'm so busy because I'm renovating my house. It'll be, dude, you had a year. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> what are you doing? So I'm, I'm doing it. I'm getting all that stuff done as, as much as I can. And, you know, uh, 10,000 steps a day, you know, just the, like, I'm trying to not dwell too much on, yeah. uh, the, the sort of complete cessation of my career. Sure. Sure. It's, it's interesting. <laughs> it's interesting too, because like in terms of behaviors and Krim and I have talked about this before, like, it, it, it's interesting the changing of behaviors of the people you talk about, like getting the renovations done in the house, you know, where we normally host this face to face is in a, a pub in Leslieville called radical road brewery. Yeah. And, and they had to put out and notice today, and I've never seen them do this before. They're a microbrewery. Well, yeah. Steve actually calls them a macro brewery and they had to put out a notice today on social saying we're sold out. We're going to have to shut down for two days to restock. So wow. Crazy. Interesting is like, you know, I, I don't go to the beer store anymore. I'm just buying directly from my local micro. Like, right. Times have changed. I'm, yeah. 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 What, what do you think about that? And what do, you, do you think that's going to translate beyond this? Like, I hope so. But what do you think? Yeah, I really hope so, too. Uh, and I, I think that I, I know that somewhere um, in many somewheres, people are keeping track of data because hmm. if you ever wanted convincing arguments for things like uh, a universal living wage, and all of these other things that have been, you know, the sort of extreme radical left have been spouting on about for a long time. Well, we're living it right now. And yeah. I, I just hope that people are keeping track of stuff like this because when this is all moved to the next phase, let's say, because I don't think when it's all over is really the right way of looking at it. But when we move to the next significant phase of this, I really do hope that we all walk away with 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 some valuable lessons as a one of my favorite writers is a, a woman named elizabeth gilbert and she wrote a book that i just love called big magic which is for any of the creatives out there it's it's really worth reading but i heard her being interviewed recently and she said we've all had our collective soothers pulled out of our mouths and now we have mm-hmm. to deal with it without because i'm a, i love my job i i've yeah. been on stage since i was i don't know 18 19 and um, I, I love that aspect of it. I love the travel. I love all the parts of it. And, and it's all gone. And so how do you, you know, like suck it up, buttercup, move, moving yeah. on to something else, you know, and, and maybe that so maybe it comes back, maybe a version of it comes back. I certainly hope so. I mean, that's, that's what I do. But uh, in the meantime, you know, you can't just like swan about in your house coat. <laughs> <laughs> talking to a man who is sitting on his bed. But um, <laughs> thank you, thank you. You're welcome. But you know, I like. Yeah, there's there's got to be some things to come out of it, and it's not lost on me that learning to sit still is mm. tough lesson. Tough lesson. Mm. That is that is interesting way to to, to phrase that. Yeah. Um, are you you know besides home renovations and making sourdough, are are you <laughs> Are you writing? Is is this sort of time? Uh, is it an introspective time for you? Or do you? I'm, I'm curious about sort of your creative juices. What you're doing? Well, 
not yet, but I, I suspect that that will be the next sort of phase mm. for me. Um, because I think as it slowly sinks in, at first you're like, okay, I've had to cancel a show. And then, oh, okay, now I've canceled a tour. And well, maybe uh, most of the summer's gone. Oh, maybe I'm not going to work till next year. So the slow realization of how this is going to be. And, and one of the things that I've been thinking about is when they do say, okay, we're allowing um, gatherings of over 500 people or over 250 people, we're allowing that to happen again. There's going to be the stampede of artists um, yeah. from, from the local, I play, you know, the, the, the wing joint down the road to uh, Coldplay. Everybody's going to come hurtling out of the, their cupboards going, me, 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 over here. And uh, it's going to be, uh, it's going to really, <laughs> we're all going to have to get creative because yeah. normally people release stuff staggered over 12 months. And some of us are really strategic, like uh, independent artists tend to stay away from sort of uh, December, November, December, October, November, December, because it's leading up to Christmas and the market is swamped with big, big, big artists. And so I tend to release in January, February, March, when things are just starting to come around and wake up again. Mm. But what's going to happen whenever this does happen is I, I suspect that there's going to be kind of a, like a, it's going to be like a race or something where they, you know, the starter pistol goes and we all start running like limited. Yeah. And, and some people have, some people have shelved their releases right now. Yeah. Until they can release and support. Right. So yeah. You have I mean, it's, stuff. Just, it's just, everything is so unknown. And so, uh, so to answer your question, I do suspect that uh, even though I had just released an album and well with Blackie and the Rudder Kings and on my own, I suspect that, I'm going to have to consider um, another release somehow, mm. just to be some starting something new again. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I don't it's know. one one thing I was gonna to mention. Um, or one thing I was gonna bring up is, so when Kelly and I got together, coming up on 20 years ago, uh, we were merging our CD racks, and mine was full of Foo Fighters and Lincoln Park, and and Kel was. Um, Kel was uh, uh, more on the, the folkier side, um, rootsy side. And I remember looking at the CDs going, Blackie and the Rota King, like I know the name, but I, and Stephen McCarrie, I, I know the names and Tom Wilson, but I mean, I didn't know the music. And, yeah. and since then, over 20 years, I've had the pleasure to see you play with, with Tom and Colin in, uh -huh. numerous times, as well as seeing you, you know, personally a number of times with Jennifer and, and Kelly and Connie and a few others at Hughes Room. So you know, we talk about what's on the flip side. What do you, what do you think is on the flip side for live venues like that? Like, is it going to mm. be this deluge of live shows or like, are we going to scale up to scale down? What do you think? I know, I, was, I know some of them aren't going to make it and that's really heartbreaking yeah. because there was already a, a dearth, a lack of live venues. So uh, some venues aren't going to make it, but I also don't know if I think there's going to be some artists who are just going to go, you know what? Mm. I'm done. Like this was wow. the last step for me um, because there's always people that are just barely making it. So um, I do think that there's going to be a real hunger for, for live music. And I know that in the industry, people are talking about live streams and how, you know, are we doing ourselves a disservice or not mm. by live streaming in terms of are people going to get used to this kind of a medium? And personally, I, I don't, 
maybe a younger generation, but my generation, my demographic, I don't think that they're, I think when the, the opportunity to go back to a live venue and sit in the dark, drinking a beer with other people when that happens, yeah. I think everybody's going to want to do that really badly. I, I know yeah. I, I want to play to a live audience that I can see and, and all that stuff. You know, I just saw somebody sent post a thing of, boy, I miss pay for really overpriced beer at concerts. And it's like, yeah, <laughs> the, the live, the live concert thing. You can't, you can't just, you can't um, replace it at all. Yeah. I really don't believe you can. Yeah. Are you, so are I, you, I think that's going to come back. Yeah. Do you yourself outside of the times that we're now, do you find yourself going to a lot of live shows? Do you enjoy that experience yourself as a viewer? Um, no, I don't actually do a hell of a lot of okay. it because I'm always on stage. So, yeah. I mean, this is really strange for me to, uh, there's usually periods in my, in my touring life where I might have two months where I'm not touring, oh, wow. yeah. but not much. Um, it's usually I'm out for two or three weeks and I'm home for two weeks and then I'm out and in and out and in and out. That's the way I really like to do it. Uh, occasionally, you know, I might go out for two months, like if I'm going to Europe. And then I'd come home um, and I might not be back out again for a month and a half. But after two or three months, it starts, like I start to go a bit squirrely. So normally I'm, I'm, I'm on the road so much that when I come home, all I want to do is be at home. Yeah, fair um, enough. But, you know, occasionally, yeah, like if, if somebody who I really, really want to see comes through, then I'll make an effort to go see them. And, and there's always the, you know, popping into venues to see friends when you're on the road. Sure. But yeah, it's a it's a really different experience for me. Yeah. I actually usually see the most music in the summer when I'm at the festivals, and then I can wander around and see other people's sets. You've put together you're you're starting this new series, um, weekly series called Under the Hood. Yeah. To tell me about that. What's what's that all about? Well, that was Jennifer's idea, and uh, <laughs> we were sort of. At first, the impetus because the first thing I had to cancel was. Uh, uh, an album release in my hometown in Victoria. Oh, wow. So uh, it was right down to the wire. And about, uh, I think, three days before the concert or four days, they announced the, the uh, no gatherings over 250. And I was like, okay, well, that's the end of that. Because we're kind of waiting for a definitive word from somebody. Um, and that was it. And so the first thing I did was uh, I went up to Duncan, uh, where the... Um, the Duncan showroom is, and they've been broadcasting their, their live shows at tiny venue, but they've been broadcasting with, I think four or five USB cameras from uh, that they can control from the back of the room. So they've been broadcasting on YouTube for years. Okay. So I went up there and played into an empty, a dark room with my friend, Terry David Mulligan yeah, uh, yeah. talking to me um, and, and coming in like kind of like a zoom conference so he would ask me questions about the album and I would play songs. And that was the first thing. And then it was like, well, what do I do after this? Do I just show up every week and play a concert? Like that just seems weird. So we were, we did a couple of those and then we were kind of cast. We did a, a by request and we did a covers one. And then I, I just thought, I don't know if I want to keep doing this because I don't know how this is. I don't know where this goes. Mm. One of the things, I mean, I haven't answered your question yet, but I will promise. Okay. <laughs> I, I could talk the hind legs off a donkey. But um, one of the things that, that, that people are talking about is the fact that if I'm on, if I'm live streaming once a week, let's say, um, people who normally would only see me play a show 
maybe every 12 months if I'm lucky. You know, they, they'd come to see my show when I'm in Toronto and then I don't go back to Toronto again for 12 months. So they saw me once, maybe mm -hmm. twice. And they might see you over a period of five years, maybe three, four times max, if they're hardcore fans. And suddenly they're seeing you every week. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's kind of like, ooh, um, it, it starts to, it's like, you never want to be predictable. And I believe in smoke and mirrors and I believe in the glamour of performance. And there is even, even when it's just you and an acoustic guitar and a naked bulb in the crudest folk club you could ever think of, like the dingy basement folk club in you name it. Um, even so, there's still a bit of magic. Yeah, there's a there's a glamour to it, uh, and and I I miss that. And so the idea with Under the Hood was to do something that I would never do in live, which is basically play a song and talk about it for however long, you know. And they they some of them clock in for like an hour and a half. That's amazing. So you have to be pretty hardcore, like. It's, it's it's if you don't want to hear me jabbering on about my song and talking about why I wrote this image and, and rhyme schemes and all that stuff, then this is not for you. But if you do like that kind of thing and you're like my stuff, then hopefully it's interesting. But that's, that was the idea. So something that normally you would never see me do unless you, unless I was doing a songwriting workshop or something. Yeah. So that Absolutely. was the idea. Just come up with something different. Yeah. That's all. I, I want to do a little bit of that now. Um, okay. Because I, I read, a, I, I listened to, <laughs> I listened to Yellow Jacket the other day. Yeah. Um, the song. Yeah. A and um, I read a little bit. I, I saw a quote somewhere that it was based on these energy drinks or something. <laughs> Pills. Am I way no. off? No, Pills. no, okay. you're very close. They're they're little like they're like truckers' friends. You can buy them. They're legal. Oh, they're and, okay. Uh, it's legal speed. It's basically it's like an energy <laughs> drink in a pill. So it's, it's God knows whatever's in that stuff. Um, a lot of caffeine, things like that. That's what yellow jackets are. And they, they were marketed so that they have like, they're in a capsule that's yellow and black and they're called yellow jackets and you know, they sting you and you, you know, you take two of those if you're driving for 18 hours and you're like pinned, you know, as you go down the highway. So that's where that started. That's crazy. <laughs> There's and more to the story, this but. <laughs> was this like an all the time thing as you're traveling across the country going from gig to gig? No, this was this was a one time deal and Tom Wilson is responsible. Um of course. Of course. So <laughs> we were driving Tom and I were driving back from Nashville to I was still living in Guelph at the time. He lives in Hamilton obviously and we're driving back up and it's a 14 hour drive. So it's it's just long enough that you probably shouldn't do it in one shot, but okay. you know, around hour 10, yeah, which is like most people can do a 10 hour drive and you're thinking, ah, God, we're, you know, like I'm so close. I'm not going to pull over now. <laughs> I'm going to keep going. So you, uh, and anybody who goes back and forth, a lot of musicians go back and forth from Toronto to Nashville. They would, this would be a regular occurrence. They do this drive in one shot and it's just, it's, Dull. It's the dullest drive ever. It's not like driving through the mountains or yeah. even across the prairies. It's just sort of shorn cornfields and gray industrial building business sites. And it's just, 
it's just really dull. Most of it, not all of it. Some of the upstate New York's pretty, but anyway, we stopped at a truck stop. Wilson disappears, comes back with mystery meat sandwiches, chocolate bars, caffeinated water, which is a weird American thing. Caffeinated water. Yeah, it's water and caffeine. And yellow jackets. These little pills. So he was at the counter and went, well, I'll have those. And so <laughs> he, as I'm driving, he opens one of them to see what it looks like. And it's like um, kind of white, gritty stuff. And so he's, he basically says, let's just divvy them up. So we're divvying these things up. Don't try this at home, kids. Oh, yeah. And, <laughs> and, and we then ate the chocolate bars and then drank the caffeinated water and basically started talking very quickly at the same time, <laughs> put the car in cruise control <laughs> and just. And how many albums were written during that time? <laughs> <laughs> well, we were listening to rough mixes of, uh, yeah. I can't remember which album it was, but it, it, it was one of the early records. And uh, anyway, there's a sort of the the the, uh, the emotional uh, what would be the word the emotional toll that it takes on you when when it's over the the rush of caffeine <laughs> it's heartbreaking it's just like screeching brakes it's like wily e. coyote going off the cliff and going like this and then <laughs> plummeting so um, that's we we've been sort of talking about this song and uh, okay. this character named Yellow Jacket as we were driving and. Um, at one point I look at Tom and I said, how are you feeling? And he said, I'm feeling kind of emotional. <laughs> because, I can't imagine him saying that. That's hilarious. Because, well, if he tells the story, he says it was me. But um, he, <laughs> because this sort of the, the, the post caffeine rush was pretty intense. And, yeah. uh, and so that's where the song was born. And, and, and driving through those upstate New York towns that are so hollowed out and bleak, you know, the downtown is dead and boarded up and everybody's living on the outskirts around the TGI Fridays and the lows. And it's just like, wow, it's, it's quite a, so I imagine this character and, and, and Tom and I actually started writing the song together, but he wanted me to sing the whole thing in a falsetto. And that's where we parted company. <laughs> sure. How, how is, how, so how is that like for you, because you've worked with Black and Rodeo Kings with Tom and Colin and you do your own stuff. Like what is the difference for you when it comes to songwriting between writing your own and collaborating? It's, it's uh, well, the difference between writing your own and collaborating is, you know, it's when you're writing your own, you sink or swim on your own, you know, you make your, all the decisions and you can, you can chase your little, uh, you can chase your, your rabbit down the rabbit path at will. But when you're writing with somebody else, you may disagree on certain things. They may have the, the, the bull by the horns, in which case you back them up. It, it really depends on who's hot that day and who's got a, a really strong idea. Sometimes co-writing is about just going to make a T and playing the same chord progression over and over and over so that the other person can hear it. Um, mm -hmm. So that's, that's the, one of the big differences. But writing for Blackie as opposed to myself, I don't really differentiate. I know Colin okay. does. Uh, I think Tom does, but both of those guys are, I would say they're a lot more prolific than me. Um, I tend to write like the Kings and King, uh, sorry, King of this town, this, the most recent Blackie record. 
I was under the impression that we were getting together to uh, do some co-writing and then we were going to get together again and do some more co-writing and then we we're going to get together and maybe demo. And it turns out that the first co-writing session was the only one. And the next time we got together was to record. So oh, wow. I suddenly realized, because what happens with the Rodeo Kings is if you don't have enough material, that's fine. Those guys both have loads of material. Someone else so does. it's like, oh, you don't have any? That's fine. We'll, we'll just use one of mine. And so you, you better bring, you know, your songs. And, and there's a very, usually a small window of time from uh, when you hear about it till when it happens. So I find myself sitting down, you know, hurriedly writing songs. And it seems to work for me that way. It seems to be okay to just sit down and go, I have to write a song today because I'm flying to Toronto tomorrow and I need something to put on the table. And so I sit down and I start noodling and I get a song. Um, that seems to be my way of writing as opposed to the, it's nine o'clock in the morning, I'm going to go to my desk and sit down and write, which is how a lot of people do it. Hmm. So it's, it's whatever I get is what I bring to the table. And it's only a couple of times where the band has said, nah, you know, or nobody ever says no. Um, but you can kind of get a sense that they're not really that interested in the song. Yeah. But that only happens occasionally. And it sounds, everybody's, it sounds like, sorry. No, I was going to say, so it sounds like, and I, and again, it, it, I've seen the band live. It's a band, but it, it, the way you describe it, having, you know, been in a band myself with my bandmates for like an, an extended period of time on and on. Like, it, it sounds like, and I, mean, I don't mean to, I don't mean to downplay this, but it, like a project, like you're each bringing your, your pieces to the project for the band versus like living together constantly and yeah. fighting yeah. and hammering it out. Not to yeah. say you oh, guys yeah. don't fight it out, but you know what I mean? Like that kind of, I don't know. <laughs> it, it, it is, it is different. Um, it's, it's, it's really, it's hard to, put your finger on it because it's definitely much more, much more intimate than a project, but it's not the sole thing that we do. And so I know that if, um, well, this is a good example, this, this sort of lockdown that we're all in, I'm not on the phone talking to my bandmates every day. In fact, I might not speak to them for two months, but they're always in the back of my head. And I know that when the time comes, mm it'll happen really fast, whatever yeah. it is. Um, okay, we're going to get together and we're going to play a show. So suddenly a week ahead or two weeks ahead, as soon as a date is announced, we'll start talking very quickly about the logistics of it. And it's kind of, we're at a point now where 25 years, we've been doing this for 25 years. And early days, there was more uh, socializing. Uh, we like each other's company a lot. And we have a really good time when we get together, but it's always around playing. It's always around recording and that's it. Um, we're, we don't socialize outside of that. And even as I say that, I think, well, that's a bit weird, but I mean, Tom lives in Hamilton, Colin's down in Nashville, Johnny and Gary in Toronto. So those guys see each other a little more often, but still everybody's got their own mm -hmm. other things going on. Wilson's he's, he's writing another book. He's painting like a fiend. Yeah. And, you know, everybody's got, like, Colin's got an, an incredible studio in his backyard in, Nel in Nashville now. They just built the thousand-square-foot cathedral ceiling purpose-built building. And wow. so, you know, everybody, everybody's busy, and everybody's got their own things on the go. And when we get together, it's really intense. It's really fun. We laugh a lot. And all the other complications that you would expect from – 
a band that's been together 25 years and the youngest member is 57. <laughs> you oh, can wow. imagine, you know, it can get, yeah. it can get uh, interesting. You guys are, especially with Tom in the band. <laughs> oh, fuck yeah. Can, well, Tom, do- Tom, who is, you know, the soberest member of the band. Now? Think about that for a moment. Yes, yes. Tom has been dry for that's right, yeah. 15, 16 years. Wow. So but when you first met, like that must have been a, a trip. You know, here's, you know, the stories about Tom and, and his, his, uh, his old rock band and old jumpers, know, the, he- yeah. the heavy lifestyle. Yeah. Um, and then it's like, okay, let's, let's do a Roots tribute thing, really, as it started out with. Like, how does that happen? Yeah, I remember very <laughs> early, 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 early. Uh, we just started recording Higher Hurtin, uh, which is the first album. And uh, I had a gig in Banff at the Banff Center. And um, Tom was playing in Banff at Wild Bill's Paddock, right? So there was the two worlds. <laughs> I was, I was at the Margaret, <laughs> I was at the Margaret Greenham Theater playing solo. <laughs> and Tom's down at, at Wild Bill's Paddock with Junkhouse. Yeah. And uh, he comes to see me play. He comes to see my show. And then, of course, because he's playing a club date, I think his show started at 10. And mine was pretty much done by then. So then I go down to see his show. And we're sitting <laughs> on the ground in the jan- in the broom closet with the mops and stuff around us. That was where the bands hung out at Wild Bill's. And um, drinking vodka out of a bottle. And Tom puts his arm around me and goes, I'm going to be your bad influence. <laughs> now, God bless him. He can't even, you know, he, like, he, he has to doesn't be- drink. <laughs> he doesn't drink. He doesn't have to be careful if he eats, like, uh, too much gluten. You know, like... <laughs> So yeah, who's going to be the bad influence now? You know, I sneak over with loaves of bread. Come on, Tom. <laughs> but no, everybody, you know, everybody, everybody made it through their their um, addictions and, and weirdness, which is yeah, one yeah, of the yeah. reasons why our band is is so close because we've seen each other through death, divorce, uh, rehabs, uh, you name it, and um, we we all have a lot of respect for each other and patience for each other and, and a great, great fondness for each other because I mean, speaking personally, I get to be in a band with, with, well, four of the greatest musicians that I'm ever going to run across and, and creative spirits. You know, the rhythm section are one of the greatest in the world. Johnny mm-hmm. Diamond, Gary Craig, unbelievable on fantastic musicians. And uh, Richard Bell, who was our, our other member who's, who's been gone now many, many years, you know, he was, Richard Bell was in the Hawks. He was in Ronnie Hawkins band mm-hmm. after the band left. He, he was in the band for a while, mm-hmm. played with Bob Dylan. Like, you know, this yeah. Colin's been in Emmy Lou Harris's band. Colin has opened, toured with Bob Dylan and been his guitar player. Like, I get to be in a band with this incredible players. Yeah. I get to learn so much right from being beside them as opposed to, you know, everybody else who watches. I get to be on stage with them. So yeah. I learn a lot. I, I, I get a lot out of it. It's great. That's what awesome. has kept you guys together after, you know, you guys did a tribute to Willie P. Bennett. Yeah. And was it 25 years, 10 albums? Yeah. Like, what is it about these group of musicians from different backgrounds doing their own projects. Like why do you guys still come together? 
I, I don't know. I mean, I do know, but um, all of the reasons I could give you would just be kind of like, it's, it's a long list more than one thing, but mm. it's the old cliche. There's, there's chemistry. There really is chemistry. Mm. Um, one of the jokes we make is Colin and my, the, our job is to keep Tom happy and his job is to keep us laughing, which he does. I mean, I've been in <laughs> 25 years. I've heard some of these stories so many times and he can still make me like fall down laughing, which is amazing. He's a very, very funny man. And everybody's very, um, there's, there's a lot of love. We were all raised by our mothers. And I think that has something to do with it too. Mm. I think that there's a underneath those hairy, crusty exteriors beat um, some pretty serious hearts. So that's, that's how we get along. <laughs> I, wanna, I wanna talk about like your formative years a bit. Um, how old were you when you went to Ireland? Well, my mother and I disagree on this, but I think okay. I was six and I've actually <laughs> written that into a song. So officially I was six. So officially, yeah. She says I was seven. What does she know? <laughs> <laughs> and how long were you there for? I was there s till I was 17. So give or take 11 years, formative years, you know, high school, all that. And was... So I, I read somewhere and then I, I noticed it was on your website. So I said, okay, people know about this then. Um, you, you come out of Ireland mm -hmm. and focus on roots music. Yeah. You too comes out at the same, you, you apparently <laughs> you went to school with these dudes. Yeah. Um, and they start off as a punk band. Yeah. Um, well, so I'm curious about like the influences in, in Ireland that have these two different types of music that come out. It was a great school that we all went to, which was a, a kind of unique uh, school in Ireland. It was called a comprehensive and there was no corporal punishment and there was no mandatory sports, which Ireland was, of course, for so long was very, very much under the, the thumb of the Catholic Church. And uh, there was a real class system and the Protestant Catholic thing obviously was pretty intense in the okay. South not as much as in the North at all. Um, but still, there were, there were kind of <sighs> categories that people were in. And it was very hard to get out of, of your little category that you were, you know, middle class, working class, upper class, Catholic, Protestant, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Um, and this comprehensive was kind of uh, a breath of fresh air because a lot of people from different classes and different walks of life ended up there and uh there wasn't this huge arts program but there were some progressive teachers there and one in particular a guy named donald moxham he encouraged me a great deal but i know that he was really important in u2's history because he gave them access uh when they were they were uh, the hype First, that was their first mm -hmm. band name. Then Feedback, or maybe it was the other way around. I can't remember. One or the other. And then they became U2. And whilst they were in that sort of very baby band phase, he made sure that they had access to the music room so they could rehearse. Oh, wow. And, you know, it's, it's all you need when you're a young musician is one person to take you seriously mm -hmm. and to say, you know, I'm going to help you. And so they played the school dances. Um, I was, from the early on... I remember one of the most important records in my mother's record collection was Gordon Lightfoot's greatest hits. I, my personal theory is that we are influenced by our parents' record co collection yeah. 
as much as anything. And so her collection was pretty interesting and Lightfoot's Greatest Hits was in there. And, you know, when I pulled the guitar off the wall that was hanging there as an ornament and started trying to figure out how to play it, I gravitated to Lightfoot's Greatest Hits. And my sister, who had left ahead of me, gave me Willie P. Bennett's Hobo's Taunt, which is my connection into Black in the Rodeo Kings. Ah. Um, but so I was sort of into the singer-songwriter thing, whereas what was happening at school and with bands like you 2 and there were several bands that came out of that school, um, but it was sort of the uh, new wave thing. And so post-punk, still punk energy, but new wave um, was... Uh, 79 was the, was the year the ground, um, the, the sort of ground zero for punk, they say. So I left, yeah, I guess it was punk more than anything. Um, New Wave would have been later. I left in 79. But it was a time when when people were picking up guitars and there was no rules anymore. You didn't have to be uh, like one of the bands on top of the pops, which is what we all watched. And, yeah, you, you know, could, you could, then you were like hearing the sort of the Gen X's and like Generation X as a band. Yeah, and stuff, there you was know, coming out and that sort of that, that bridge between the punk and the new wave. And yeah, there movement. was a band called the other band that was happening beside you too was the Virgin Prunes. And I remember seeing both bands and a third band playing at um, this, the church hall. So the mums and dads are in the vestibule making tea and cake <laughs> to give to the kids. And we're in there pogoing around in the dark with black lights with these, these young punk bands and the Virgin Prunes. Like, I don't know if you ever saw those guys. Like they were, they were like the New York dolls, but they were mm. from Dublin huh. and they were way more radical and, and punky than, uh, than you too. But you too, sure. you know, they had this great front man, Bono, Paul Hewson. And even then, even he was a high school student and he was, he was a good front man. So that was all happening. I just didn't have the, I was too <laughs> introverted. I was, I was I could, like being in a punk band. I just couldn't even figure it out. And I couldn't afford an electric guitar. I had an acoustic guitar and you couldn't really play, you know, God save the queen on acoustic guitar, no. <laughs> but you could play you Rush could. Never Sleeps, right? Yeah. You can yes. do that. So Neil Young has made an appearance again. Wait a second. Yeah. Hold on a second. Hold on a second. Before I jumped on, did he pay you to bring that up? I'm just asking because every, every time, every time Neil Young comes up, he just he calls the interview and that's it, and we're done. That's it. It's over. Done. No, I uh, I wish. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's, it's, I was just, I think because I had an acoustic guitar, I was sort of steered that direction. But I also think I really had an affinity for the singer songwriter kind of thing. You know, that, that seemed to me more interesting than yeah. which most of my friends were doing. Sure. When, when did you know that you wanted to be a musician? Or are you I still had figuring this, that out? Uh, well, no, I, I was, it wasn't a decision um, of I'm going to do this, but uh, more uh-huh. of a, a realization I am doing this. Uh-huh. Um, I had this fantasy that I was going to join the Navy, the British Navy. That oh. was like when, when they, the parents say, what are you going to do when you quit school? And I'd say, I'm going to join the Navy. And that would shut them up. Um, oh, but really, <laughs> I had no idea what I was going to do. And, and I had this vague fantasy of being in the Navy band. So I just sort of took the oh, Navy wow. part out and went, ah, <laughs> but you know, I, I had no clue about it. Like I, I left Ireland, um, in 79, I ended up in the States for a couple of years 
And all the while I was doing all the things that you do, washing dishes. I worked at a deli. Uh, I did a number of jobs and the music slowly, slowly, slowly was, was, um, kind of running parallel with everything else. So at this one place, the malt shop in Minneapolis, I would dishwash uh, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and then I would play um, in, in the restaurant, uh, you know, 45 on, 15 off, Friday and Saturday. And then I go back to being a dishwasher. So they were kind of coming along side by side. And then there was the point where you go, and this was many years later, where you just stop doing your day job. And throw your lot in hundred percent with music. And that's always a very scary, scary point because you kind of now it's, it's a lot more serious, which I, you know, you, you know what I'm talking about. It's just all suddenly you're making a living from it. It's, it's way more serious deal and the, the stakes are much higher and the pressure is high and all that stuff. But I've been lucky, you know, I've, I've, I've had very, uh, I've had people that, that believed in what I was doing enough to help me. And that's kind of what you need. And so you've seen the progression from, you know, albums, you know, people releasing albums, people buying albums, listing albums front to back. And today, you know, where some people are just releasing, dripping a song out every month yeah. or whatever. Yeah. Um, you know, how, how has that impacted the way you're releasing music? It hasn't. Has it? No? it hasn't okay. yet. Um, and it's, it's, it's almost, uh, with the conversation that every time I make a record, we have a conversation, we, Jennifer and I, Jennifer, my manager, is this the last time that we do this format or it still is there. It's, it's more of a niche format, but there's still my demographic, which is roughly people in their mid forties up to people in their seventies are coming to my shows. Um, they're still buying records. Um, it's, yeah. it's, it's the curve is getting real steep now. Uh, I just played shows in Denmark and, uh, that was startling because it's the very first show I played was in a theater, uh, 300 seater, maybe 180 people to 200 and something came. I played with this Danish band who were backing me up. It was great. It was amazing. Beautiful theater, full PA and lighting and sound techs and monitor techs and the whole deal. And it was so fantastically Danish and beautiful. And um, they wanted an encore and then another. They want three encores. They, they got us back. So I'm thinking, That's great. okay, we are going to sell some merchandise tonight. Mm -hmm. And I stand by the merch table and everybody goes, thank you so much. It's lovely. And they're all walking out the door. It was like an MC who's the guitar player I work with. He said, yeah, man, sorry. I tried to tell you people, nobody buys music here. They all stream. It was like, Oh, that's so sad. That's, that's so home of Spotify is out in that, in that part of the world. Yeah. Yeah. And so whether it comes to North America to the same degree, the writing is on the wall. And so, I don't know. I, I love making records. That's mm -hmm. the problem. I like writing a, a batch of songs and then going and recording them all at once. And then it, there's still a need to have, you know, your new album because it's kind of like the artwork for the tour and the story for the tour. And it's your calling card. It's the, it's the thing that you plunk down on the table and say, I'm back. Yeah. And without that, I don't really know how this works in my genre. Yeah. 
um, you know, for everybody, other artists, it's, it's a different deal for yeah. sure, because they're already existing in a different realm than I am. You know, I'm not a YouTube artist in that way. So I don't, I don't know. I don't know yeah. how it's going to, how it's yeah. going to play out. Your, your first album was on cassette. Yeah. Uh, way, way back in 86, you talked a little bit about, um, you know, finally quitting your, your day job, um, between 86 and 95, when you, was 95 your first Juno nomination? I don't remember. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> There's been so many of them. Um, Go to my website. It'll yeah. tell you. <laughs> well, my, my, my research assistant says 1995 was okay. your first one. Um, were you still working? Were you, were you still like a working man back then? Um, I you know? quit my day job. The yellow tape came out. I still was working at, I worked at Lifestream in Vancouver, which was a health food store. So I was okay. like loading the, the bins full of rolled oats and stuff. And I kept that up until, uh, I'm going to say late eighties. And then I focused solely on music. Um, I lived in Vancouver until 92 and then I moved to Ontario and by then I was, you know, f completely <laughs> committed to this one way or the other. But yeah, so somewhere in the late eighties, I, I quit my day job such as it was. What, what does it, you know, being a Canadian, what is a Juno nomination? I'm sure it's a very important. Um, what is it, what does it do for a, for a musician's career. What did it do for yours when you first got your first nomination? I know you've won a couple of them. Um, what does it do when you first get nominated? I, I, I honestly, I don't, I think it legitimizes you to a degree. Hmm. Um, there, there are strange things, awards for music because it's art. So who yeah. gets to say, you know, whether this was better than that. Um, but there is a thing. Um, there's definitely a thing where you, it's, it's kind of like having um, letters after your name, you know, yeah. OBE, whatever. <laughs> I don't know why I thought of OBE. That's order the <laughs> but you know what I mean? It's kind of like yeah. a, it connotes a certain amount of um, something. It doesn't necessarily mean that you've, you know, put in your 10, 10,000 to 100,000 hours, mm. but it does mean that somebody thought you were good. Um, yeah. And to the, un, to the people out there that don't know who you are, it can be kind of like where you can sort of put your cards on the table and say, well, this is who I am. So uh, from that aspect, it is definitely a, a positive thing. Um, aside from that, so much of it is political. It really mm. is political. And, and so you know, how much of that really matters? I don't know, because you're already kind of preaching to the choir or you're already hanging out with the cool kids. And so if you get to wear a badge that says, I hang out with the cool kids, does it really matter? It's, it's, it's a mixed thing. You know, I'm, when you don't get one and you've been <laughs> nominated a lot, um, it feels weird. And I went through that for years and years. I was uh, jokingly referred to as the Susan Lucci of Canadian folk music, <laughs> Susan Lucci, which I didn't even know who she was, but I guess she was a soap opera star who never got whatever their awards are. Yeah, who never were. won, but kept yeah. on getting nominated. Yeah. 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 So I got nominated like lots. <laughs> and then finally 
I, I won two of them. And both times that I won once was on my own for yellow Jack. Yeah. I think it was for that album and yeah. then blackie won. Um, and neither time was I actually at the award show. Oh, geez. So I thought, hmm, maybe if I just don't go, don't show up. I have better odds because that's so far what's happened. And uh, are, you, are you nominated this year? No, um, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Cause nobody's going to be shown. There was the one that just, that just happened. Yeah. I missed that because my album came out. So my album is coming out for this next cycle. So yeah, we'll yeah. see. I don't know. Maybe there will be a Juno's next March. Yeah. Doesn't look that good right now. No, 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 it doesn't. Um, so, so what does success, like, how do you, how do you determine what success is? Is it, is it just that you have the ability to continue doing it or is, is there units sold? Is there trophies? Is there crowd size? What is What does that mean to you? For me, it's just the ability to keep going. Um, mm which when you're young and you're starting out in this, you get a lot of, get a lot of hot air blown up your skirt. No, you, you get a lot of, a lot of, a lot of bullshit is, is, is whispered in your ear. And um, you get a lot of people saying things to you like, why aren't you more famous? Which is such a weird question. Like how do you answer? That? Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> what do you mean? It's just such a weird conversation. But I had a very good friend of mine, Gary Crystal, who Gary uh, was the founder, one of the founders of the Vancouver Folk Festival and is a wise man. And he sat me down at his dinner table one night because I was whining about, I don't know, whatever it was, something I should have. I Why haven't I fill in the blank? And he said, dude, although he'd never say dude, but he basically said, look, man, you have a car, you have a rental apartment, you have food. That's it. That's all you get. Stop. Stop thinking about this stuff because it will drive you mad and it, it, it will. And again, going back to my, one of my, um, my gurus, Elizabeth, Elizabeth Gilbert, this great book that she wrote called big magic. She says in that book, you have no control over whether people like this stuff or not. And you don't like you don't, it's, it's not up to you. And so there's a great freedom in that, which is to just let go of that. And if you can afford to keep making the work, because the work is the whole point, the, 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 the songs, the playing, all of that stuff, that's the reason to do it. And if it makes you enough money that you can afford to keep doing it, then you are successful then that the two things that you need have come together and that's success. And hmm. there is, there's this tiny sliver of artists that are making big bucks. And then there's a huge slew of artists that are not actually able to hang on that are, that are just clawing at the poverty line. And in between hmm. there's this little margin of artists that are making enough money to continue to do it and cover their expenses, you know, and as, as we go more and more into live work because album sales are falling off, uh, airfares, hotels, gear, uh, all that stuff. And then your health, um, you know, can you, can you actually keep doing it? Can you, can you get on a plane one more time and sit for nine hours and then get in a car every day and drive for four or five hours as you go from gig to gig? It takes a toll on you. So huh. if you, that, that's, that's the gig. That's the, if you can afford to keep doing it and you can cover your costs and, and, you know, have a life, uh, 
then you're wildly successful. That's my definition of it. You've, um, you've, 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 you've been fortunate to collaborate with a lot of people. Um, who, who, who haven't you collaborated with that you would love to work with? Uh, one of the ones that I really got this close was, um, Nick Lowe recorded mm -hmm. a song that I wrote with Andy White for the Kings and Kings record. And he basically, he said, I'd love to record that song because Colin was sending them out to various artists that were on our list. And he said, yeah, I liked that, that song. Um, but he said, can I, can I rewrite some of the lyrics? Because there was a line in the song that says, I was born at the start of the summer of love. I grew up in a world full of change. And he said, nobody's going to believe me singing, I was born at the start of the summer of love. I'm Nick Lowe. They know how old I am. It's not going to fly. <laughs> so do you mind if I change that? And I, I said, of course not. You're Nick Lowe. You can do whatever the fuck you want, man. <laughs> so he rewrote the song to say, um, an eager young man in the summer of love. I was loose in a world full of change, which is such a great line. I was loose in a world full of change. Anyway. Um, so he rewrote the song. Now, I tried really hard to get into the session because I was actually in London. I was in Camden Town, which is, I was playing a gig when he was recording the song. Mm -hmm. And Colin was, was emailing me saying, he's going to record it tomorrow. He's rewritten it. He's going to record it tomorrow. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm in Camden. And he's going to be in Camden in his studio recording. Can I get in? Because if I can get into that session, yeah. I will freak right out and uh, <laughs> I was not invited <laughs> so that's the one for me that got away I got to meet yeah. him after and talk with him a little bit about it and he's a delightful man but you know just it's the it's uh I would love to have met Johnny Cash never got to meet him mm -hmm. Roseanne I have met and she's superb human being it's just you know being around those characters who have been in the business for for so long and, and, uh, um, have a, a wealth of knowledge. Um, that would be a trip to be around those people got to tour, uh, 14, 14 or 15 shows, the rodeo Kings, the three of us, just as a trio, we opened a whole bunch of shows for Merle Haggard mm. and that was amazing. So, you know, that those, any, anybody from that kind of era, uh, in particular would be, it would be amazing just to be around them, just to be able to talk and hang out a little bit. You, there's a quote, uh, or this is attributed to you. Um, I think it was on your last album, the golden era of analog recording. Yeah. You said you, you wanted to get back to that. Yeah. Um, you know, beautiful tie-in with Neil Young and, and sort of yeah. his, his yeah. whole mission on, you know, yeah. bringing the sort of the analog sound back. Um, Tell me your thoughts on, on, on analog and, and where we are with, you know, how people listen to music and stuff. Digital is definitely a, a double-edged sword because on the one hand, that record, which I'm talking about getting back to the golden era of analog is in fact was recorded on a laptop. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> but the aesthetic behind it, the idea behind it was there was a point with with sort of the, the, the high end of analog where the engineers were at the top of their game because they had worked as the equipment grew, um, the technology developed. Uh, when you went from recording um, four track 
to you know 16 track to 32 track and all the compressors and the EQs and preamps and all the stuff that um, a modern uh, like a high-end analog studio would have because it was all outboard and all those circuits and all of those uh, just all of that circuitry, tubes, but not necessarily tubes, but all that stuff. It, it, the people that ran it, they, they learned how to use it as it developed. And so there was a point where it reached its zenith. And it was sort of in the 70s where you had bands like Steely Dan and um, not just them, but bands like that who were, they were pushing it as far as they could um, multi-track tape and um, the sounds were amazing in the country world. The, an album that I've always loved um, uh, behind closed doors, Charlie rich. That was kind of that, the, 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 the top of the game of that era where all of the players would be in the same room at the same time. They were all crack players. Like, They'd do four, uh, two or three songs in a four-hour session, and they'd walk in with nothing. They'd never heard the song before. So in a four-hour session, they would learn the songs, come up with an arrangement, record the definitive version of it, and then move on to the next one. And the engineers, everybody was functioning on all cylinders, and the gear was gorgeous. Um, so when you look to digital, you know, digital is ones and zeros, it's, 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 um, it's, uh, it's, it's a different, it doesn't have the same, um, and this, <laughs> when you hear people talk about digital and analog, they start moving their hands a lot because it's hard to define it, but no matter how be- good your resolution is, you're still talking about ones and zeros. You're still talking about square waves. Um, analog doesn't have that. So the amount of detail that you can get with analog is potentially better. However, mm. digital equipment is unbelievable and it's come so far. And the fact that I can fly to a studio in, in um, Winnipeg and record an album for bare bones money, that sounds really good. And um, what I meant by that, the, 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 the trying to get back to that golden era of analog was the method of recording where everybody's in the room at the same time and you're reacting to each other and you're trying to capture something sonically in the moment, as opposed to, uh, I record my part to a click track and then I overdub and I overdub and I overdub. And, and it's a very different process. It's just a, it's a different beast altogether. Blackie and the Rodeo Kings has always been about, um, recording live and, um, and whenever we can, as much as we can analog, mm. just because it's a different sound. Um, whether it's better sound now, or not is is definitely debatable and there'd be a lot of way more qualified people than me who could argue both ways and i've sat and chatted with them both (laughs) with both sides but uh there was a a level of skill amongst the players and the engineers that i think we've lost a lot of Hmm. um in this era because What's happened with digital is it's come along so fast that um, there's a lot of engineers who don't actually know their gear that well. They may know Pro Tools really well, but they don't necessarily know mic placement really well. That's changing, um, and there's a you know there's a there's a a, a level of of engineer that I've I've had the pleasure of working with in places like Nashville, which is unbelievable. They mm. they have they've they've uh, they've they've ingested all of it. 
So they, they, they know all about mics. They know all about tube gear. They know all about digital gear and they, they've, they've, they've got it all under their fingertips, but that's just starting to happen. So what, what we're getting into now is, is this sort of hybrid of engineer who's equally comfortable with both digital and analog, and they will use both or either of them depending on what's more appropriate, which is really amazing. It's interesting when we've talked to some of the engineers that we've had the pleasure to speak with on Welcome to the Music, um, they've talked about the equipment getting smaller so they're able to like pack up, you know, I'm not going to say a suitcase, but essentially pack up a suitcase, fly to whatever location, set up the gear, both analog and or digital, whatever the combination yeah. is, and, and they can like just set up like that, record, pack it up, and away they go. And it's yeah. just, they, they've talked about it being, it's made it easier to set up on location. Yeah, I believe that's true. Yeah, yeah. And I think that the, the quality of what you walk away with is really, really high now. And digital has become this thing. The, the double-edged sword, of course, with digital is that the, at the same time as it's enabling us to do stuff um, compact, uh, low budget, all of that stuff that the tools are, are really heavy now that we uh, like intense, what we can do um, is, is, is amazing. But at the same time, digital is Spotify (laughs) and it's gutting, it's gutting the industry. It's killing the industry. And you know, like uh, in February I was in Toronto to do um, some television um, breakfast TV (laughs) with Blackie and the Rodeo Kings. So, we're pulling into this um, downtown television studio at five o'clock in the morning. And uh, I'm walking and it's right at Nathan Phillips, not Nathan Phillips square, the big square with all the billboards where the soft, the, the young Dundas square. Yeah. So I'm, I'm standing there five o'clock. There's nobody on the streets and I'm looking up and there are those huge billboards that are like four stories tall uh, led billboards. And they're all devoted to Spotify. And I just went, oh my God, yeah, that's where all the money is. That's, <laughs> there it is. It's, there's yeah. the whole story right there. Yeah. And if, I mean, we don't, we don't, we don't want to get into that conversation because it's, it's, it's a whole other conversation. But if I'm making 0.004 cents per stream, in order for that to equal the sale of one CD, that's 5,000 streams, you know, there's the math. I go to a show, I sell... I played a show, one of the last shows I played, um, new album. I sell 35 CDs at the show. That's great. That's, you know, that's, that's reasonable. I'm going to pay back my investment on this, the album that I just made. Take me a year or two to cover all the costs. And in the meantime, I got the steady cash flow and it works out. But as soon as I start looking at the streaming model, that's it. I can't afford to record anymore. And so the whole thing gets skewed towards the, the acts that are subsidized by those labels that are actually making some money, which is very, the whole thing just gets distorted so that the likes of me, it's tough. And the only way we can make a living is playing live. It's playing live. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's the only I, way. I know that you, you're also a record producer. You've done some producing, you do these songwriter workshops Um, you know, you talked earlier about, you know, as long as the body can hold up, you continue to go on the road, obviously, you know, post COVID 2021, um, is that sort of quote unquote, your retirement? Is that sort of what you could see yourself doing, you know, staying involved, you know, 
Not saying that you're getting old there, Steve. <laughs> I want to yeah. make sure. <laughs> but but where, where does all of this sort of fit into your 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 music career? I don't I don't honestly know. And every now and then, my mother, who is 84, says, "You know, you can't do this forever," <laughs> and she's right because it's it starts to it does start to take a toll uh, physically. Um, the recovery time when I come home from a month and a half touring through Europe is is greater than it used to be. Um, but I love playing live. I, I love it. I love touring. I don't want to quit. So I am going to spend the, I, I quit smoking a number of years ago. I, I took up vaping because it was a way for me to fiddle with my hands and get some nicotine. And well, I like nicotine. Nicotine's a great drug. Um, but eventually I had to quit that because I couldn't, I just can't like, it's anything that is stopping me from doing this. Yeah. Gotta go. Um, uh, so the idea for me is to just keep playing as as live as long as I can. If there still is a live scene, so we'll mm-hmm. see what happens when we when we somehow ease back into whatever is coming next. Um, I I believe in my heart that there there will be and that people still really want that. But um, at some point you have to say, I can't do this very often and I don't know what I'll do then. Um, I like making records for other people, but if, if, if records are something that's um, a maybe as well, I don't know being a record Mm. producer is that, is that smart of a move teaching? I like teaching songwriting to people and there's definitely, that's one of those jobs that, the more you do it, the more, you know, you know, can you imagine having, you know, if, if John Prine was teaching songwriting, like what a class that would be. So to be able to go and be with somebody who's been in the business that, uh, that you can kind of not just learn about songwriting, but the philosophy around it, that kind of thing, you know, maybe that's something I can do when I'm um, older and, and I'm not able to travel as much, but until then I'm going to be hitting it hard. Um, you know, I, I figured out how to tour with just me and a guitar and a uh, slightly extravagant pedal board. And uh, I love it. I've got friends in all over the place that I get to visit once every, maybe if I'm lucky, every 18 months, 12. You know, sometimes I stay with people that, that I've, I've been friends with them for 20 years. I see them once every two years. I stay with them for five days. And it's, it's, it's I don't want to let go of that. Perfect. Um, so, Stephen, one of the questions I like to ask is, right now, what's what's in your ear? What are you listening to? Uh, um, I've made this decision, which, okay, I, I try not to make this too long. Okay. <laughs> oh. I made a record. Um, I made a record a couple of years ago called "The Secret of Climbing," and uh, it's it was a vinyl only release because. I was asked to make it by a guy named Roy Gandy and Roy Gandy founded a company called Riga research in the seventies, I believe. And Riga makes turntables, speakers, amplifiers, CD players. They're a British company. They have employ about 150 people. They make and sell, I think 5,000 turntables a month worldwide. And they have done since the seventies. And, you know, the whole, oh, Stephen, the death of vinyl didn't really affect us. Like, <laughs> amazing company. And they, they're really, you know, they, they refine things by microns, which is how you measure your hair. Like, it's, 
it's this weird little world when you when you come across a company like that. It's like a it's like a high end car manufacturer or something. Anyway, Roy wanted to make a record that he could use to demonstrate his turntables, where he knew because as somebody, if you could imagine that you spend your whole life creating the back end, but you have no control over the front end, he's got some pretty strong opinions on what people are doing wrong in the studio because he listens to it in a way that you and I don't. Um, So he over the year has championed records that he really loves that he feels were recorded in a way that is what he wants to hear. And uh, he has actually made a couple of records. So he basically said to me, could we make a record with as little technology between you and the cutting lathe as possible? So the microphones, obviously the wires, um, but going directly to preamps that he made himself, no EQs, no mixing boards, no fixing, cutting, or pasting. It was all one take. And um, that went to vocal and guitar track, one and two. And then we went from that, which was on a a Studer eight track, so a real nice quality, reel-to-reel. From that, he went to left and right. So he had to mix because you took two mono signals and you put them into stereo and we added a little bit of reverb and that we had to arm wrestle over that because we had to add digital reverb and Roy was like, no, no, but we did. And we both felt that it improved the project, but it sounds like the record sounds, it's so intimate sounding. Um, it's almost at first I felt that it was almost claustrophobic because I am so close to the microphone and because there's no compressors and there's no EQs, there's no, the signal is not going out through other circuits. It's going direct to tape. And then from that direct to the cutting lathe. And when he cut the record, (laughs) most of the times you go into a mastering studio and you run the signal through the mastering board. So he went to air, which is George Martin's studio in London pulled this guy named Ray Scarf out of retirement and they bypassed the air um, mastering board and went direct. He said there's literally a wire going from his reel to reel directly to the cutting lathe and he brought in this master cutting engineer who cuts the mother disc that you stamp all the, the records from. So that was my sort of reinitiation into the world of Vinyl, because I left vinyl, I quit vinyl, I don't know, 20 years ago. I I was traveling around, I gave up on it, I I kept my vinyl, but I had a very modest collection. I bought into CDs 100%. I was all for CDs. They were great, and they still are. And as a musician traveling around, you put 300 of those suckers in in the cardboard case in your suitcase, and that's your tour, right? Mm -hmm. Try carrying 300 LPs around. On on your own in a car, like it's it's a real pain in the arse. So I gave up on vinyl. And when Roy and I worked on this project, he asked me if I had a turntable, and I said no. And he was embarrassed for me. And he uh, gave me one of the their starter basic uh, Riga model turntables. And I realized. So here's the <laughs> the answer to your question. <laughs> Sorry, all right, long preamble. That's okay. I real. I realized that I wasn't listening to my CDs. I had downloaded most of my CDs onto my hard drive and they were sitting in boxes in the basement. And when my wife and I moved to Victoria, all these boxes came with me and I looked at them and I went, what am I doing with these things? Hmm. These are just files that are in this format. They're all on my hard drive. Goodbye. 
And I yeah. took them all to Value Village, <laughs> my entire CD collection. Mm -hmm. And I went, goodbye. And uh, it was very weird feeling um, because I've been collecting this stuff for years and years. I, I don't know how many I had. It wasn't like some massive collection, but it was my collection. I realized I have not bought music for 23rd, no, 10 years. Mm -hmm. I haven't bought music because I don't, I don't go to record stores anymore because I don't exist. And I had fallen out of that whole habit. And I, I thought, okay, well, that's it. I'm going back to vinyl. So I've been buying vinyl. So I tend to listen to old music because some of the new stuff is not very well pressed or uh, it's ridiculously expensive. <laughs> like I'm not paying 35 bucks for, you know, a, a vinyl record. Uh, that, that, that's just ludicrous to me. I, I will go and buy it from the artist at a gig for that money. But mostly I'm buying, you know, stuff that's on sale or I go to the secondhand store and buy it there. And most of it is stuff that I used to have or I had on CD and now I want to have it on vinyl. So what am I listening to? I'm listening to everything um, um, but on vinyl. And of course, when, I, when I'm traveling, you know, it's all on my phone and everything. Yeah. So I, you know, do that too. But um, everything. <laughs> Kareem, do you still have, do you have still have all the CDs? Because Kel and I did the same thing. We got rid of ours. We didn't go to Value Village. I hand them off to this guy over here. Do you still have those? Because if you do... You've got all the Black and Rodeo Kings. You've got Steven <laughs> stuff. You've got Stacy Earl. You've got I do ton of stuff there. I do, I do, and it's interesting because as soon as you gave them to me, Greg, I go, I don't have a CD player. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's, there's only one in my car, and um, I, I don't. I hardly drive anywhere. Yeah. Um, forget about now. I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm on the same tank of gas that I filled in, yeah. you know, bef before we had to hunker down. But, um, so in short, Greg, all of your CDs are now in my storage, <laughs> 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 but, uh, you're, you're right. It's, it's, it's vinyl or yeah. it's, um, mm -hmm. it's, 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 it's weird, but you throw on the, you throw on a radio station sometimes too. Yeah. Oh yeah. A lot of that. Um, but it, it, I realized, Oh my God, I'm a songwriter. I'm not listening to music. I'm listening to French CBC because I don't know what they're saying and they have much better music tastes in the <laughs> evening. So they've got great jazz. And in between it's just this, I don't know what, I, I don't speak French at all. I'm a classic Canadian, so I don't know what they're saying. So it's perfect. Nice. It's, it's, it fulfills all the things I want and the music's better, but I thought this is, I got to go start listening to music again with intention, not just having it verbal in the background because I'm a, you know, I'm supposed to be a songwriter. So, uh, yeah. So it's been very exciting. It's really fun to go. And there are some, well, Toronto's got some great music stores, but if you're ever in the prairies, Oh my God, Saskatoon and Regina and Winnipeg, they three, those three cities have incredible used vinyl stores. Mm -hmm. You know, they've got tie-dye t-shirts and bongs and everything. It's just like going way back in time. Way That's back great. in time. Back when you started. Yeah. Um, Stephen, this has been a delight to, to speak with you and to, to listen to your stories. Before we let you go, um, if people want to tune into your under the hood, if they want to, you know, find out more about you, maybe you buy, buy some vinyl or whatever, where, where should they go? Uh, com would be the best place to go. Everything's there. Um, and uh, it's the weird thing. Websites are becoming sort of like the back room. Um, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, 
it, hopefully I'm easy to find. If I'm not, I'm not doing my job very well, but I am, I'm on all of those platforms um, pretty regularly. So uh, yeah. And, and there's a YouTube site as well, which if you, you know, we're archiving all this stuff there as well. So it's interesting. We're right now we're fighting the YouTube um, copyright control because for some reason they're, they're questioning, you know, why did you play that song? You're not the copyright holder. So that's what happens with YouTube. I think when you suddenly start uploading a bunch of music stuff, they go, uh -huh. wait. So, but yeah, all the, all these live streams are archived there. And so, yeah, stephenfearing.com will steer you to everywhere. This has been awesome. Thanks so much for joining us, Stephen. Thanks for having me and letting me fucking talk your ears off. Thanks. Oh, no, it's awesome. I love the stories. Appreciate <laughs> right it. Right Appreciate on. your time. Take care. I will uh, click leave. See you later. Thanks. Take care. Stay safe. Stay healthy. And you.